2: This is the best of
0: OutKick,
1: the coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio.
2: Appreciate all of you joining us early this morning on a Wednesday edition. We're back from Atlanta. The Alabama Crimson Tide continues to be the ruling national champion of college football. And we are moving towards figuring out who the champion of the NFL will be as a divisional round inches closer and closer four different games, two on Saturday and two on Sunday, and we'll begin to break all of those down, giving you a roadmap of where today's show will head. Uh, Hour one, we'll talk a little bit with my guy Johnny Oddshark to kind of get you set for divisional round gambling action. Uh, Later in this hour, we'll also in hour two talk with Jeff Schwartz and break down all the divisional playoff games as well. But Got a couple of stories off the jump here that I find to be really particularly intriguing that I want to hit on, and we haven't had that much time to talk about them because of the NFL and obviously being in Atlanta the past two days and our focus on the NFL playoffs as well as the college football title game. And the two stories are these. One, I haven't talked that much about LeVar Ball and all of the stories surrounding the Lakers and all of the comments that have been made about his uh, attack on Luke Walton and I find it to be such an incredibly fascinating story in a modern media sense and we're going to talk about that some here off the jump and also John Gruden officially ending his tenure with ESPN as Monday Night Football uh, broadcaster and becoming the new head coach of the Oakland Raiders why I think it's a really good hire for the Raiders and why I think he's going to be great for Derek Carr as they continue to uh, work on uh, Carr's evolution as he moves into the fifth years. I don't think there's any doubt at all for anybody who watched the Raiders or any casual fan of the NFL that Derek Carr took a big step back in year four. Why was that? And what sort of legitimate goals should the Raiders have with John Gruden now back in charge calling plays? We're going to play you some audio clips from that. But first I want to start with LeVar Ball because we haven't spent any time on it and uh, or hardly any time at all. And I want to give you uh, a couple of thoughts here, and then we're going to play you an audio clip from, I believe it was Steve Kerr, that has gotten a lot of attention over the past couple of days. Uh, This story, to me, is emblematic of how the landscape has expanded when it comes to who is worthy of of being a major figure in the world of sports. And let me explain what I mean by that. What the internet really did, I think, on its largest level when it comes to sports, is it changed and expanded the 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 arena when it came to who is a public figure and who do we talk about. Now that might sound confusing for a minute, but let me kind of break that down because I do think it's a it's a smart way to think about how sports and sports media changed. Prior to the internet, there were very few people out there who could tell you who the strength coach was for a college football program. Think about that for a minute. Back in like 1991, is there a single person out there listening right now who knew, even if you were a diehard fan, who the strength coach of a college football program was? I would argue that the answer is probably no. And that's not because you didn't care about your team. And that's not because you didn't follow them aggressively in the newspaper. That's because there wasn't that much space to give over. No matter how much you liked your team, there wasn't that much space to give over to the overall entire coaching staff. And so you might know about several big players. You might know about several um, several coaches. But it's unlikely you're going to know, like, say, the strength coach. In this modern era, I bet just about every single hardcore Alabama fan knows that Scott Cochran is their strength coach and can tell you a story about him and probably watched a video of him destroying the runner-up trophy leading up to this game against Georgia. And that's because the internet has expanded the, 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 the range by which we cover characters. Same thing is true. If you think about, for instance, recruiting in college football, I remember I had a good friend uh, in a pre-internet era, really, uh, before rivals exploded, before 24-7 sports exploded, before all of the different recruiting sites took off. There was a, uh, the way that you kept track on recruits, if you were a die-hard recruiting junkie, and this is crazy, and I bet some of you may have done this, but very few of you who are young are even going to realize this existed. You would call a 1-900 number and pay like you were calling a sex line a substantial amount, whatever it was, $3 a minute to get the latest update on recruiting in a pre-internet era. And there was a relatively small segment of the population that was aggressive enough to follow recruiting in that way And so that was the way you followed on a day-to-day basis the ups and downs of the recruiting uh, universe. And then, you know, it would be covered in newspapers a little bit. But by and large, if you were a recruiting junkie, you couldn't cover that. Then the internet begins to exist, and those are $100 million businesses now that are able to satisfy fan demand for recruiting info by charging $10 a month uh, to fans. I got a funny story here. When I wrote my second book on Rocky Top, great guy by the name of Alex Hott. Uh, I went to college in uh, in George Washington University uh, at at uh, in Washington D.C. and I worked in a congressman's office up there as an intern while I was there. And Alex Hott was the chief of staff for Bob Clement, who was Nashville's congressman at the time. Huge University of Tennessee fan, obsessive University of Tennessee fan. Uh, and when he he uh, it was one of the saddest stories that, uh, that I've ever been involved in. Um, when I was a sophomore, I believe, he was uh, coming back to Nashville to run Al Gore's campaign in Tennessee in the 2000 presidential election. And he was leaving Al Gore, the headquarters of the Al Gore, uh, Tennessee campaign, and he was hit and killed by a drunk driver on West End Avenue in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and uh, he was engaged to be married at the time. 34 years old, uh, incredible guy, uh, killed by a habitual drunken driver. I mean, just an awful story. Um, and uh, there's still a lot of people who have trouble um, recovering from that. And um, I, I, I definitely, um, you know, I wrote a lot about it in On Rocky Top. And his fiance at the time, went back to look over all of their expenses on the, on his credit cards, and she saw that he was calling these 1-900 numbers. And she was like, what in the world has he been into? I can't believe he was calling phone sex lines while we were married, uh, engaged to be married. And she called that – eventually she called that 1-900 number. She's like, i got to figure out what all these charges are that were going to his uh, his phone's. And uh, when she called, it was 1-900 number was uh, for recruiting info. He had been so obsessed with recruiting that <laughs> just about every day he would call and pay uh, you know, $3 a minute to figure out what the recruiting info was. And that's a, a remarkable story about just an, an awesome guy. But what is fascinating about that is it was before the internet really taken off. This is back in like 1997, 98, and there's no real uh, ability to, uh, to get that info. And I'm using this all as an example because LeVar Ball, to me, represents the full fruition of the internet expanding the arena to the point where a guy like LeVar Ball can become famous without doing anything at all other than being the dad of a top basketball player. And top basketball players, in quotation marks, because is Lonzo a top 60-player in the NBA right now? Probably not. I mean, he's not a top player in any stretch of the imagination. Yet, LeVar Ball in Lithuania has got his own beat writer following him from ESPN.com. Jeff Goodman goes overseas to Lithuania to follow around the Ball family. Yesterday, Leangelo and LaMelo's game is streamed on Facebook, and 160,000 people, I think it is, are simultaneously watching their debut as pro basketball players in Lithuania as it's streamed live on Facebook. And so the LeVar Ball story is an interesting one because on so many levels, but I want to play you Steve Kerr's comments right here, and then I want to get your reaction to it. I'm going to bring in the crew and get their reaction to it as well. But we didn't talk about this because uh, the game's going on, but Steve Kerr kind of went off on the modern media age, and Steve Kerr has been very talkative in general about things outside of basketball this I thought was a particularly perceptive and astute criticism of the modern media environment that we find ourselves in and I'm going to play that audio for you here and then we're going to unpack it let's hit that audio
3: where we're going is we're going away from covering the game and we're getting closer to just sensationalized news and um, it's not even news really it's just uh, complete nonsense Um, but if you package that uh, irrational nonsense with some uh, glitter and some ribbon people are going to watch somewhere um i guess it's in lithuania with our ball's laughing people are eating out of his hands for no apparent reason other than you know he's become like the kardashian of the nba or something and and that sells that's what is true in politics and entertainment and now in sports um, It doesn't matter if there's any substance involved with an issue. Um, It's just can we make it really interesting for
2: no apparent reason. And this is a real, to me, big question. And I want to get you guys' reaction. I'm going to open up the phone lines, 877-996-6369. To what extent does a media organization have an obligation to make journalistic decisions not to cover somebody if they don't think that person is relevant in a larger scale, if the media, if if sorry, the fans at large are gobbling this story up like crazy, like catnip. I I, I just find it to be one of the one of the great questions about not just sports media, but media in general of our age. Is the media back in the day when you wrote a newspaper? An editor would look around at all the stories and he would assign them and he or she would make a decision about what the newspaper was going to cover. Same thing would happen in television. What the internet did was it broke the idea that there was this gatekeeper who should decide what people want to read. The internet told us exactly what people want to read and I think about this because I have a website, right? So I've had a website for six years, outkick.com, outkickthecoverage.com, does millions of readers uh, a month and a year and everything else for for the last several years, and I can see exactly what people read. And so I always say that it's like being able to peel back the, the external arguments that people make of, oh, I don't care about whether Brett Favre is going to retire. Oh, I'm sick of Tim Tebow. Oh, stop telling me about LeBron James versus Michael Jordan. Oh, stop telling me about LeVar Ball. Why do you keep writing so much about, uh, you know, like insert popular yet over-covered in many respects subject? And what you would see over and over again is people may claim that they've got enough info about a subject, but they consistently click and read about it. And I'm certain LeVar Ball is that situation right now. And some of you right now are probably rolling your eyes. Like, I'm sick of talking about LeVar Ball. I don't really think we're talking about LeVar Ball anymore. I think we're talking about the modern media, and LeVar Ball has become a metaphor for it. And is Steve Kerr right? To what extent does an organization like ESPN or an organization like Fox Sports or an individual like me have to not give people what I know they're going to want to hear and or click on, even if we don't think it's particularly relevant. And I think that's where the power of the media still exists today because they can decide what they think is worthy of a story. And then I guarantee you the stories about LeVar Ball on ESPN.com are among the most read on the entire website. But just because that's the case, should the gatekeepers at ESPN say, you know what? On a pure story basis, LeVar Ball's opinion of Luke Walton doesn't really matter. It's not a big story. If we're going to suddenly say every parent's opinion of a story is relevant, where exactly do we draw the line now in this new expanded scope of where stories expand to in an internet era? I just, I, I. I find, and then there's other people out there who are saying, "Oh, you shouldn't be covering him. Oh, we're going to blame the reporter who asked the questions." I don't think you can blame the reporter for asking the questions, but I do think there's an interesting question there to be had about just because people are reading it, does that mean it's news? Because I think that's the easy response, right? Well, the re- why are you covering Levar Ball because people click on the articles? And people may say, oh, I don't care about LeVar Ball. I don't click on the articles. But the data reflects that you do. And the first time that I remember really noticing this was probably about a decade ago when everybody said, why is Brett Favre's retirement or non-retirement being so obsessively covered? I don't care about whether he's going to play for the Minnesota Vikings. I don't care about this story at all. I'm totally uninterested in it. And then we would get the site traffic data I was writing at fan house at the time, and Brett Favre articles would dominate everything else. So people like to say, Oh, I don't read that, but in reality they do. And LeVar Ball is basically the porn of the sports industry right now. People say, Oh, I don't know who are those people who is looking at pornography? I'm not looking at pornography. Nobody goes on the internet. I'm not not the guy who goes on the internet and looks at pornography. Meanwhile, 40% of all internet traffic is porn. All right, Everybody's looking at porn out there. But people deny that they're doing it. LeVar Ball is, for the sports media industry, porn. He's cheap clicks. He's not particularly uh, in-depth. He's uh, candy, right? There's no substance to it. But is there still an obligation to cover it if we know that everybody's going to click on it? Should there still be a gatekeeper industry? I just find everything about this LeVar Ball story to be utterly fascinating. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Let's roll right into this uh, John Gruden audio. John Gruden has been the great white coaching whale forever. He wanted to keep his name in the mix because he wanted to eventually come back and coach. It's funny, we spent a lot of time talking about all the groomers surrounding John Gruden, the John Gruden coaching rumors uh, at the University of Tennessee, and I know he had significant conversations with a lot of boosters there, talked about putting together a staff, And the number one reaction was, why in the world would John Gruden leave Monday Night Football? I can't tell you the number of times I heard people say that. And the answer is, because he's a coach, and I thought he's eventually going to be a coach again. I've been saying that for years, that John Gruden is not going to become John Madden and just go into the booth and never return. And then when he takes the Raiders job, all those people who were saying, oh, he'll never leave Monday Night Football, they just vanished. They just disappeared overnight. And we officially got the introductory press conference of John Gruden 20 years after the Raiders hired him for the first time. And my guy Danny G has put together the best cuts from that press conference as well as John Gruden appearing with JT and the Brick, uh, which I believe uh, JT the Brick. (laughs) JT and the Brick would be an incredible combo, though. Uh, JT the Brick uh, on uh, Fox Sports Radio in the afternoon. Here is the collection of all the audio from John Gruden, newest Raider head coach.
4: I never wanted to leave the Raiders, I never thought I'd be back, but here I am and I'm ready to get to work. There's really uh, four major reasons that I am here coaching today. Number one, I love football. I love the players that play it, I love the preparation, I love the journey, love football. And I love the city of Oakland. I had a son here, some of my great memories in life are in Oakland, and I want to give them two of the best years of football that I can possibly help deliver and I love the Raiders. The brand is global. Everywhere I went as a Monday Night Football analyst, the Raider Nation would come out of the ground. I love the Raiders, and most of all, I love to win. And I'm gonna do everything I can, no guarantees, no promises, but I wanna win. He has a great arm talent, he's athletic, he's got natural leadership skills, he's young, he's in his prime, he's healthy now. I think he's got a huge upside. With Greg Olson and the system that we're gonna put in place is gonna demand a lot from him, and I think that's what's gonna unlock the greatness in him.
0: Big reason I'm here is because of the city of Oakland. Uh, the Oakland Raiders, they trained me, they raised me in the black hole. And I wanna share football with them for two years, and I'm really dead set on giving them everything they've got. I remember as a coach of the Raiders, I wondered what Kansas City's practices were like. To have an opportunity to see those things was incredibly beneficial, and I would be able to go sit in different meetings, visit with different coaches on different teams. When you're a coach of the Raiders, you can't get those opportunities, and uh, it did benefit me a lot, hopefully it shows. I never really wanted to leave. I'm thrilled to be back, and very few people get an opportunity to go back to where it all started. I'm thrilled and I'm thankful for the opportunity, but I also consider it a great responsibility to do something with it. And I just encourage all the fans, hey, I need your help. Let's rock this place, let's have some fun, and let's, let's play our best football for the city of Oakland.
2: Raider Nation, this is a big effin' deal. Please welcome the head coach of the Oakland Raiders, Mr. John Gruden. Gruden officially back into the NFL and I'm not one of those guys who's out there saying oh I don't believe in him I have questions about him I think he's going to be good like most head coaches in the NFL are good if they have a good quarterback and I do think he's got a good quarterback in Derek Carr even though things have obviously fallen off this past year really ever since the injury I mean Derek Carr has not been the same guy I mean if you go back in time to and I'll bring in Danny G to confirm all this since he's a resident Raider expert on the show. But if you go back in time to the moments right before that injury, and it was looking like the Raiders were going to potentially have the number one overall seed in the AFC contending for the Super Bowl to having to trot out their third string quarterback in uh in Connor Cook against uh <laughs> Brock Osweiler uh, in that awful trying uh, to forget in, that in that awful yeah. playoff game last year. <laughs> And then this year, he just hasn't been good. I mean, Derek Carr all season long, the Raiders finished 6-10, and get Jack Del Rio fired. I mean, from potentially having a chance to win a Super Bowl with Jack Del Rio the year before to getting him fired the
5: next year. What in the world happened with Derek Carr? Well, Todd Downing got Jack Del Rio fired. And Jack Del Rio got himself fired because he was too stubborn, Clay, to change anything and make any adjustments. I, I think the trouble started with Derek Carr against Washington. Uh, They're in D.C. against the Redskins. You saw that it was a standalone nationally televised game and the O-line fell apart. Derek Carr fell apart. He was on his back for most of the game and then the next week they go to Denver and they're trying to shake that off and instead he breaks three bones in his back and he only looked like himself at home in Oakland against the Chiefs, which was that Thursday night game where he had that crazy comeback in the fourth quarter. Remember, it took like six plays at the very end, all those untimed downs. and Yeah. Yeah. That he looked like Derek Carr that game, but that was about it. It was a lot of inconsistencies. The wide receivers dropped a ton of passes. The O-line, the scheme of the new blocking scheme, the zone blocking instead of the power blocking backfired on the team. And so it was just discombobulated. The team was very disjointed. And you had this stoic Jack Del Rio standing there in his post-game press conferences where all he could say was, well, we just need to get our mojo back. And he was never fired up. And I don't think I need to tell you that Raider fans are super passionate fans. So you almost need a coach on that sideline that's just as fiery as the fans. And John Gruden definitely is the man for the job.
2: All right, so right now we have, I would say, five young quarterbacks. And I'm still defining young quarterbacks as Derek Carr and younger. We'll put in Blake Bortles there as well, since he's now in the second round of the playoffs, okay? All of those guys are in their fourth year or younger. I'm going to try to name them all. We've got Blake Bortles, who's obviously in the second round now playing against the Jags. We've got Derek Carr. We've got Marcus Mariota, who is in his third year and is now in the second round of the playoffs, having won a road playoff game playing against the Patriots. We've got Jameis Winston down in uh, down in a really disappointing year with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We've got uh, the young guys, the, the second-year guys, Carson Wentz, who is injured, Jared Goff, who just lost, and Dak Prescott. I think that is seven guys. I want to bring in all of you guys as the crew. Who would you take right now of those seven as your quarterback for the next decade? There's seven guys I just named, all in their fourth, their third, or their second year, all, you know, completing their fourth, their their third, or their second. I'm gonna rank them. We'll talk about this a little bit more, I think, in hour three, because I do find this a little bit intriguing. And I'll tell you who I would take right now. So of those seven, and you guys are gonna you guys are gonna be furious with give, me. Give us the seven again real quick. All right, the seven. Give us the seven and, then say and everybody, Mario you can to... you can hop on Twitter. You can hop on Twitter and give me your verdict of who you would take of these seven, all right? These are the seven youngest quarterbacks in the NFL right now, all starting, all either completing their second, their third, or their fourth year. I'm going to rank them at the top of our three, but I'm also curious what Jeff Schwartz is going to want to do. But these are the seven, all right? Completing their fourth year right now. We have Blake Bortles, who is about to play against the Pittsburgh Steelers, obviously managed somehow to win a game. All right, we have got also completing uh, his fourth year. We've got Derek Carr. All right, both of those guys from the same draft class. Third year. Third year, guys, we've got Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota. And then in the second year boat, we have got all three of them. I'm not going to do any first-year guys, so people out there who are like, oh, I'd take Deshaun Watson or whatever. He only played seven games, whatever it is. I'm not talking about any first-year guys right now. These are just the fourth, the third, and the second-year guys. Uh, the second-year guys, we've got Dak Prescott, we got Jared Goff, and we've got Carson Wentz. Of those seven, and again, I'm going to rank them at the start of our three, so I'll give you my rankings one to seven of those young quarterbacks. Who would you take? I just want to know who your top draft pick would be right now if you had to take one of those guys for the next decade. And I'm thinking about it, obviously, because I think a big reason why John Gruden decided to come back now to the Raiders was because of, the obviously, he's seen Derek Carr play a lot of games, and he thinks he can be instrumental in taking Derek Carr to the playoffs and winning some games there. So I think that's a big part of why John Gruden is coming back. But if you right now or an NFL GM or you were a coach whatever you want to say and you got to pick one of those seven guys to have for the next decade I'm not just talking about next year or the year after you've got them for a decade that's the benefit of being young guys who would you take as your number one overall pick who would you take I'll start with you Jason Martin
3: uh there's only two choices for me and it's hmm, it's tough because I really am impressed with Derek Carr but I'll put him at number two I've got Carson Wentz at number one. Carson Wentz, before he was injured, was the best under pressure in the NFL. He was, I think, 11 touchdowns and no interceptions when he was facing at least a four-man rush. This is a guy that got it done when they sent the house at him. What he was able to do and what the Eagles have looked like since he went out, and no one here believes that Nick Foles is complete trash, but if you look at what Nick Foles has not been able to do and what Wentz was able to do, you can see. You saw a lot of flashes in the first season, and you saw what he's done in the second season. At his height, the way he can look over that defense, get the ball down the field. He's got a solid arm. He's a really good athlete, faster than people give him credit for. So as much as I like Derek Carr, I love his competitiveness. I love what he's able to do with his arm. Really, really like Derek Carr. I would go with Carson Wentz right now. What about L.A.?
5: Yeah, would have to agree. I is would, that
2: is everybody going to go Carson Wentz? I think
5: we're going to go Wentz car 1 2. I can't speak for Justin here. you're uh, going I was going to say the same thing.
2: So everybody other than me is going to go with This is intriguing. Everybody's going Carson Wentz and Are then you, you're
5: you're going Mar, you're going uh I haven't, de- I haven't
2: I haven't decided. I'm going to rank all 7 of them. Uh, okay, I'll go I get asked right for your now. All right, I asked for your number 1. Who's your last? Who is the one that you would draft last of those 7 right now? Jason Martin. I have to throw the caveat
3: in. I know you're not going to like this, but if I were ranking these 7, Winston would be or pardon me, Watson would be no less than 3rd on this list and for me, but Blake Bortles is dead last for me right
2: now. Yeah. Without a doubt, Blake Bortles is last. Is LA, do you agree? Yep. Yes. All right, so I think we're probably going to have unity there. And I I do think Carson Wentz has to be the number one guy that everybody takes. I mean, I think he would have been potentially the NFL MVP this year if he hadn't gotten injured like he did. And I'm not of the belief that that injury is going to be so severe that it's going to somehow alter his trajectory for the next decade. So I think the Eagles have the best guy. I think that Bortles is the worst. Would you right now, regardless of what happens, in this game against the Steelers is the worst case scenario here honestly for the Jags that they beat the Steelers and have to bring back Blake Bortles for like over 20 million dollars a year how many games does Blake Bortles have to win at this in the playoffs for the Jags to commit to him long term
3: I think that's a fair question I also think you can look at it from this perspective it's never good When you're in the NFL and you can look at a football team, look at a defense that gave up 10 or less points in eight games this season, look at a stud like Leonard Fournette and say that team right there is a quarterback away from a Super Bowl. That means they're really far away because you have to have a quarterback (laughs) to reach a Super Bowl in the NFL. So that would be the worst case scenario for me because even... Blake Bortles gets to a Super Bowl, you can't let him go either. Like, right? I, you need him to lose because
2: you need to find a way to move on from him. Yeah, but it's is, not going it,
5: to be him winning the game. It's going to be their defense winning no, the I game, agree. right?
2: But what if he might have a good game? He might come out and throw for 200 yards and three touchdowns, you know, and people are like, oh, you know, and, and he would look even better because the defense would play like they did, and you'd be like, oh, you got to give Blake Bortles credit. He just went on the road and beat Ben Roethlisberger and the Steelers. I mean, I don't think Blake Bortles can win the Super Bowl, but if he beats the Steelers, does he putting the onus on the Jags to have to pay him twenty million? Like, what is? Wh- I, I'm just genuinely curious because I think right now the Jags, even though they went ten and six, and even though they beat the, uh, the the Bills in one of the worst playoff games in the history of the NFL, I think even the most diehard Blake Bortles guy. And there are some of them who come into my Twitter mentions every now and then that are just diehard Blake Bortles believers. Recognize that if you had Kirk Cousins on that Jags team right now, they might be favored uh, potentially next season to win the AFC. I mean, I don't think that's a ridiculous proposition to make right now. If you just swapped Blake Bortles for Kirk Cousins, God forbid you got Jimmy Garoppolo in there, right? If they had been able to get him in there if you got the right guy in at quarterback, and I think that's right to say you're a quarterback away because it's hard to find quarterbacks, but potentially Kirk Cousins could be a free agent. We'll see what happens with what the uh, Washington Redskins continue to do with the worst uh, the worst negotiation with a quarterback in, in NFL history. What do you decide to do with Blake Bortles if he wins this game? Because I think that puts the onus on the Jags in a really difficult way because they don't want to go with their backup they don't want to i they don't want to suddenly have to roll out there i don't think they also necessarily want to go into the draft given the fact that they're going to be picking in the 20s and go get a quarterback in the draft and there's really unless Kirk Cousins is a free agent now if you could make a play with him i think that changes everything but otherwise they're really kind of handcuffed here because i don't know what they do to be able to, I mean, you want to go to Chad Henney? It's not like they even have a young guy on that roster that they feel like could be much better than Blake Bortles. I just think they're really handcuffed. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Joined now by my guy Lane Kiffin. You can follow him on Twitter at Lane underscore Kiffen, where he enjoys having a good time. Lane, what's it like now that the season is over and you got to 11 wins? Have you had any time to kind of sit back and reflect upon what you guys accomplished in FAU at year one?
6: Yeah, we have Clay. I think you know, going on the road um, recruiting—that's when you kind of you know you get out of kind of your bubble. You know, when you're in season, you're just in the office all day and and working and, and coming home, and so that's when you really and and Boca really. You know, it's no surprise. Boca is not necessarily a football area, you know, so it's not like everywhere you go you hear you hear about it all the time because you have a lot of people that don't follow football where you, know, you start going up into, you know, SEC land, recruiting and stuff. You know, um, people know, know players on your team name now. You know, they're familiar with They know where FPU is. You know, they, they watch games and, and, and talk a lot about the offense. And we get a lot of calls from pl- people around the country, you know, that you wouldn't expect, you know, t- kids – Getting offers in the SEC, ACC, you don't know, want to come here. So, you know, it's definitely changed.
2: One of the things that's also changed is, and I always say, like, the university is the, the football team and the basketball team, often the front porch of the university. They make people aware of it. They kind of welcome people in. You guys have got a surge of applications as well from kids who just are like, man, that school seems like it would be a lot of fun to go to. What is the football team meant to the overall university?
6: Uh, a lot. You know, we have a president that understands that, and that was his plan. He came from Clemson, and he saw the impact when they started winning with Dabo. You know, he was there for that whole time. And what that does for the university, that, that's where, you know, when these salaries that are out of whack, you know, head coach salaries, you know, are ridiculous now, you know, because cause we have such a great job. But th- that's where that comes from, not just the, the money that the football program makes, but what it does to university, you know, I think they told me last week, you know our our out of state applications are up forty percent in one year, you know since we've been here. You know, that's that that doesn't happen. You know that's that's unheard of. So the impact on that has on the school and the school's budget, you know, is well beyond the football program.
2: yesterday or Monday, uh, we saw Monday night, we saw Alabama play against um, uh, obviously Georgia. and we were texting some during that game. But I want to know when you were recruiting Tua in Hawaii. I think you made the trip out there to see him. When you watched him on tape or you saw him, what stood out about his abilities that made you think we got to get this guy?
6: Well, I saw him a number of times. He came to Alabama um, to run a camp. uh, Went to Hawaii. Obviously watched game tape on him, and um, you know he just he had this just unusual ability to to see the field and to make plays, you know, he's look, I mean, it happened in the game. It's the last play, you know, he's looking over the, right and, you know, you're not really supposed to throw to the guy that you throw to, you know, Georgia's getting this criticism, you know, Kirby smart coached a heck of a game. I mean, that game could have went George's way a hundred times. We all know that, you know, referee calls, you know, different breaks. And, and that's really double coverage. You know, they're playing quarters to the field and they're playing halves to the, to the boundary to the one receiver. So that corner's supposed to reroute him, the safety's over the top. You can't throw that ball. You know, you're not you're not coached to throw that ball. You're not even coached to look over there. That's just Tua, you know, being Tua. He just he's looking where he's supposed to to the right. He feels that guy and then he just chucks the ball over there for a touchdown, you know, and and it's history. You know, game-changing play. You know, they give you know, I always think what well, what happens if, if he doesn't throw over there? You know, they miss that play and now it goes to third and twenty six and they're out of field goal range with a kicker that's not doing well. You know, now now it's reversed. Georgia what a great job Georgia did. You know, you can't take a sixteen yard sack, you know, in overtime. So um so I it's why recruiting's so big. Players make plays in big time games and that's what happened in that game. You know, like I said, credit to Coach Saban, awesome win, but credit to Kirby too. You know Todd McShade, you know, forever that's worth, was on yesterday. I saw it on Feinbaum and top 50 players in the draft. There were eight players in that game. Seven were on Alabama. One was on Georgia. You know, so, um, you know, they, they have they have great players, and that's a credit to coaches recruiting.
2: When you saw what was happening with – you talked about Kirby Smart and the ability he had done to put in a perfect game plan. It seemed to give his chance, his team the best possible chance to win. Were you surprised that Nick Saban was willing to go to Tua at the half, or did you expect it?
6: Uh, I expected it. He he didn't have a choice. You know, Um, there there was – and it really wasn't – you know, sometimes you change quarterbacks not necessarily because of the play of the quarterback because you're just trying to find a spark. You know, they were doing nothing on offense in that first half. You know, they weren't close to moving the ball. So, and, and it just felt like a dead energy, kind of some looks on the sidelines, you know. Kind of felt like a very unusual Nick Saban team in game, you know, in that first half. So I think it, I think, I don't think it was as much about Jalen's play. I think it was it was more about just one, just trying to look for something to spark, you know, spark the team,
2: and it worked. If Jalen Hurts reached out to you for advice, and he may well do it because you guys have a relationship. You were his offensive coordinator for almost the entirety of year one. What would you tell him to do, and what would you advise him?
6: Well, I've already spoke to them. You know, I think that um
2: you know that
6: that's that's gotta be a conversation they have with Coach Saban, which they're going to and you know, just what are what are coach's plans and what does he see and you know then obviously they gotta make a decision, you know, from there. I said yesterday, which you know, somebody people say, Well, I can't believe you said to a to a transfer. Well, that that's that's what we're in nowadays. You know, Blake Barnett left the year before, you know, once he wasn't the starter. They actually had three quarter two other quarterbacks left within the last year. So that's what happens around college football. I think they I think somebody said Easton's leaving. I mean when you're young, you know, and the other guy, you know, you feel like you should play and the other guy's playing, you you leave, you know, at that position because only one guy plays at a
2: time. It's not like playing receiver. Would you expect that both those guys would not come back? I mean, one or the other of them? I mean, you got two talented quarterbacks. And you just talked about it. Like Jacob Eason, the, the reports are that he is now going to transfer to Washington given the fact that Jake Fromm looks like he has that job. Plus, they're bringing in a five-star guy, I think, at Justin Fields to Georgia as well. Who knows who's going to end up actually winning that. Do you think both those guys go through spring practice at Bama and whoever ends up getting named the starter at the end of spring practice, the other guy transfers? Or do you think the writing's on the wall and one of those guys goes ahead and says, you know what, I'll bounce and uh, go somewhere else where I know I can start?
6: I would think 95% of the time, you know, um, most people in Jalen's situation, you know, and um, and and most parents, which a lot of times kind of lead the thing, you know, Jalen would, would be gone today, you know, because I think that, <clears throat> you know, what happened and, and what everybody's gonna assume, you know, is that that two is gonna be the guy, but this is different. Jalen's dad's a very strong personality, old school, great high school coach jalen's such a team player that I don't know you know maybe, maybe they both do stay.
2: Is there any way Jalen could play a different position? I got people blowing me up saying the guy is just such a difficult tackle and obviously so shifty in the field that even if he's not a quarterback, he could potentially play somewhere else. Is that accurate or is that a ridiculous idea?
6: Uh, I got that question yesterday. you know should he be play, should he go play another position? I, I want to take a poll. I want to go back 13 months you know um after the SEC championship as a true freshman and he's the SEC offensive player of the year The first freshman since Herschel Walker to do that think about that yep okay uh and I want to take a poll of the 100 and whatever 30 coaches out there head coaches how many would have would have given anything to have him on their team probably everyone probably every one of them except maybe Oklahoma so <clears throat> did the guy break his arm or something no <laughs> i mean right the guy's an elite talent and I mean, I I don't know why this year happened. What had happened, but um, you know, I look at the games, and I said this yesterday. and It's going to come across arrogant, you know. They said, "Well, would you would you have pulled him?" Well, I wouldn't have been in that situation in my head because that's just how I think. You know how competitive I am. I would have put the guy in different situations. You know, just like we did the year before. You know, look at his total touchdowns. You know, as a freshman versus a sophomore when this was supposed to be, you know, this. Great off season, and he FaceTimed Tom Brady, and you know, um, you know, I've heard Coach Saban, Coach Saban, on in an interview the day before the game, you know, the other day, said how much he's improved in the passing game. So I'm
2: not sure what happened. You would have thrown the ball down the field a lot more. Why do you think they didn't? Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't have those
6: answers. Um, they did win two of it in. Yeah, you know, so um, you know, that that would be, you know, obviously. You know, I think if you got Jalen and, and his father on the phone, that would that would probably be their their complaint. You know, the, the feeling that they have that you know when Tua has gone in this season and in that game, the ball got thrown down the field a lot more. You know, so um, I think part of that too is they got behind, and so they started going quicker. Which, in my opinion, you would have, should have done from from the first snap of the game. watch the Oklahoma game. Oklahoma got what 35 points against Georgia and 400 yards a half or something like that. Because they're going fast. You know, that you don't move the ball on Georgia and you don't move the ball in Alabama by going old and
2: running old school offenses, you know, that we saw most of that game on both sides. You, you've called plays for a long time. How do you avoid getting too conservative? down the stretch and trying to be too cute because I think that's something that happens a lot for play callers is you have some success but then it's late in the game and you're like oh boy I don't necessarily want to take the same risks that I would have taken earlier in the game how do you manage that how do you make smart decisions how do you balance that in your own mind as the game progresses and because I feel like we saw a lot of guys tighten up as play callers as the game came down towards the conclusion well I think
6: You know the assumption is when you when you need to get conservative and there are times obviously you need to, you know that, that means that you need to run the ball, you know, get under center, run the ball between the tackles, you know, and um, you know that 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 doesn't work real well versus you know teams with with good talent like Alabama and Georgia like you saw once Georgia went to that, you can get quote conservative, but you, but still have motions with things, get the balls on sweeps, get the ball outside plays that work versus those defense, you can still run those just. For whatever reason, a lot of people don't view it that way. You know, they think you got to get get everybody in tight, and you know, go to what I call like the Battle of Gettysburg. Everybody just smash smash each other. Twenty two guys smashing each other for six inches.
2: Outstanding stuff as always, Lane. Appreciate you joining us. By the way, we're going to see you back with the Raiders with the uh, with the the the, the situation with John Gruden.
6: You going to see me back there? Yeah, (laughs) maybe
2: you got to come back one day. (laughs) No, no, I I am a Raiders fan again, though. Good, Good stuff. That's Lane Kiffin. Follow him on Twitter at Lane underscore Kiffin. Oh, oh, oh,
0: O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today.
1: Oh, oh, oh. Alright
2: Auto parts